Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 261, and today's guest is Jennifer Smith, CEO and co-founder of Scribe. Let me ask you a question. How many times a week does somebody ping you with a question about how to do something? It's likely pretty often, so how do you go about responding to all those inquiries? Well, you could explain it over email, maybe jump on Zoom to show them how to do it with the visual, or detail it with step-by-step instructions in a doc. Or you could just make a scribe in seconds. Lots of products help solve pain points, but very few really, really, really nail the user experience to the point where you pause with a delightful look on your face and blurt out, that's cool. It's that aha moment that any founder would love to see from its users. Well, before interviewing Jennifer, I signed up for Scribe. As a product-led growth company, the onboarding process was incredibly simple, as it should be, but it was the experience of using their product that gave me the exact aha experience, and I recommend you try it out. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice and tips on best practices for onboarding remote employees, Jennifer's background story, including how she landed on the investment side of the equation, and how her experience at Greylock helped her as an entrepreneur, Lots of details about Scribe, including how the idea came to fruition, building out the company, their go-to-market strategy, onboarding of new users, and more. Key advice for entrepreneurs on raising VC funding and how to build out a diverse team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jennifer. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we have a lot to cover. When I do my research on a guest, I spend a lot of time just kind of going through different different rabbit holes of information about the person. And I was just digging up a lot of really interesting points about your background because we have so much to cover. You've done a lot and you're building a great company now. But before we get into that, one of the things about your background that I thought was super interesting and very relevant to today's world is onboarding of employees, right? So there, that's a use case for your company and your product scribe is helping companies onboard employees, which over the past couple of years has been a key element for success of growing your company. So what advice would you have as it relates to helping companies with onboarding? Because it's different in today's world and you don't want to have a bad experience. You don't want to have turnover as it relates to those types of metrics, which are you know very costly for businesses. So what advice and tips would you have on that onboarding remote employees? Yeah, we, we could have, I mean, we could do an entire podcast entirely on, on onboarding because it's such a meaty topic and it's so important to get right. And it's incredibly costly to get wrong. And yet when you look at surveys, there's such a disconnect. You ask most employers and they'll say, I've put a lot of thought and effort into onboarding. We do it really well. And then you survey employees 
and something around 12% of employees say, oh, I had a good onboarding experience. And there's a lot of um, uh, literature and certain research that will suggest that the first two weeks of an employee's time in a company really determines what their tenure is going to be like and what their experience is like. And so getting that, that those first few weeks right is so important. And I think there's a number of things that you want to cover um, when you're onboarding someone. And I would argue that starts before they're even hired, right? And that the big piece there is the why. Why does what you're about to do matter? What is your purpose? What is the company's purpose? And what is your purpose at the company? And how is what you're doing going to get us to where we want to go and where you want to go, right? And so hopefully you've, you've screened for that and sort of imparted that during the recruiting process, right? So someone shows up and they're fired up about the why, Hopefully they've met a number of the who's during the recruiting process. And then you can spend, you know, the rest of the onboarding time uh, making sure that people understand who they should be going to for different kinds of information, who they're going to be working with. The what is the, you know, what is it you're actually going to be doing in this job? Again, that foundation should have been laid before someone is coming in. Um, but thinking about how do we make sure they get access to everything that they need and, and they know, you know, what, what's the, um, the short-term, medium-term and long-term goals they're going to have. And the part we spend a lot of time thinking about in Scribe is the how, which is the part that tends to be really neglected. So there's a lot already written, especially about the what and the who, right? There's very little thought that goes into the how of, okay, I've met everyone. I've gone through all of the onboarding videos and tutorials and whatever it is that the company has spent a lot of time thinking about putting together. I'm now left alone at my computer, fingers on keyboard, and I'm about to go do these things. I know why they're important. I know what I'm supposed to do. How do I actually do it? And what becomes really challenging in a remote environment is back when we were all in person, that would be almost like an informal apprenticeship, right? You just kind of pop your head over the cubicle, turn it for a second. Hey, how do I, how do I, can you show me how to generate this report? How am I supposed to do this thing again? And you just kind of learn it, right? By osmosis of being around people and you sort of pick it up. When you're not with people, that becomes much harder and much more isolating to do. And so now you've got a lot of people who are sitting at their computers. They might've had a great onboarding in the formal sense of the term where you had a curriculum and they went through everything and they get everything at the high level, but now they're sitting down to actually go do the work and they, they don't know what to do. And so they're either muddling through it or pinging people. Hey, can you show me how to do this? Can we schedule a Zoom? Right. And there's nothing I think more disempowering than not being able to do the thing you're really excited to do. And so that's where we spend a lot of time at Scribe is thinking about how do you help people get the how, whether it's their first day, first week, first month, or fifth year on a job. Yeah. And it's so important. And I, you brought up an interesting point because the onboarding, it doesn't start when they actually have their first day of employment. The onboarding starts before that. And you want to have that person feel welcome already. You know, my background, as most people have listened to this is, you know, recruiting. And if a company just goes silent over that duration of time from an offer accepted to giving notice to the start date, a lot can happen in that duration of time. So you definitely want to be continuously communicating. And then, like you said, that onboarding experience is so critical over those first few days, just to make sure that employee is comfortable and they feel like they can reach out to people and ask questions. Uh, so yeah, so, so important. Well, let's rewind the clock. So your background, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Grew up in uh, upstate New York, um, pretty close to the Canadian border um, in a small, small, very cold and snowy town. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't, I'm, I'm in tech now, obviously I didn't know a single person who was in tech, um, or, or doing kind of anything related to what I am now, you know, the, the town that I was in people sort of, you know, were grew up there, lived there their whole lives and, and kind of worked in the local economy. And I, for whatever reason, kind of as a young kid said, I want to see what else is out there in the world. Like I'm, I'm curious what there is. Um, and so I went to college and that was such a transformational experience for me there where I now met people who came not just from across the United States, but around the world and had done many different kinds of things. And it was almost like this big eye-opening moment for me of there's, you know, a much bigger world out there beyond what I had just seen. So you decided to study economics and finance at Princeton. So what, what prompted you to study those topics? Yeah, I um I was an economics nerd uh, starting at the age of 13. I became obsessed with the Federal Reserve. I'm not sure I could give you a good reason why. Um, but I literally to the point like I would cut class on the days that jobs reports would come out because I just thought it was so interesting and I wanted to be like following the latest news. Um, so I just loved economics. I think because if you think about the laws of supply and I'll be nerdy for a second, if you think about the laws of supply and demand, it kind of governs everything in life, not just capitalist markets, but really any kind of market, whether it's for talent, whether it's the dating market, whether it's a social market, right? And so I just thought it was this really kind of interesting way to explain almost the physics of everything that's happening around us and that social um, and so decided to, to study it in undergrad and um, thought about pursuing it as, uh, you know, as, as a, a, in a graduate, postgraduate context and, and as a, um, a, a researcher. Uh, and then I did a thesis at Princeton and I said, oh, research is hard. I'm not, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Kudos to all the people out there who have advanced, <laughs> uh, advanced academic degrees. And it, that is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what'd you do after undergrad? So um, uh, at Princeton at the time, um, if you were a good student, you either went into academia or you went into investment banking or consulting. I had no idea what either of these two things were, um, but some very nice people came to campus to recruit. And so I went to an investment bank for a summer. I'm going to date myself as Lehman Brothers back back when Lehman Brothers was a thing. I went to Lehman Brothers for a summer and I said, hmm, that was interesting. Uh, but these people seem very kind of heads down focused on the thing that they are doing right now. I sat on a bond desk because everyone's very focused on how to trade this particular type of product. And the consultants came to, to campus and I said, these people seem more curious. They seem like really interested and in kind of popping their heads up and like trying to understand how companies run and how the world works. I said, they seem like they might be my kind of tribe. I like these people. So I ended up moving to Washington, DC um, to work for McKinsey. And what did you work on there? So there I was working um, kind of classic management consulting, working with um, mostly Fortune 500 companies, uh, usually at the, the C-suite. Um, and I focused a lot on our organization and operations uh, practices. So helping companies basically think about how can we run more efficiently and more effectively in what we're doing. Um, and I did a lot of that with the variety of different kinds of companies, but, but mostly in financial services and tech. Got it. Now you did decide to go back to, to B-School at HPS, right? I did. Yeah. I spent three years at, uh, at McKinsey and then, uh, and then went to business school. So what was the thought there as far as pursuing your... MBA. 
Yeah. I, so the firm, um, when I was deciding whether to go to, to business school or not, the firm sort of said to me, like, why would you go to business school? Just sort of stay and keep doing what you're doing and you'll be partner. And isn't, doesn't that sound great? And I sort of said, yeah, it does. But, you know, I was 24 at the time. And I said, I, I don't know anyone who is not a management consultant living in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that doesn't seem like a good life choice when you're 24. I feel like I should know a little bit more about the world and have a broader network of people. Um, and by the way, you'll pay for it. So why don't I just go? And I, I promise that I'll, I'll come back afterwards. And so that was the idea for me, kind of going into business school was just like, what don't I know? I don't know about business and about the world and about what I want to be doing and how I want to be spending my time. Um, and I, I really credit business school with putting me on the path that I am on now. There's a lot of things I don't give business business school credit for, but there's one thing I will, which is I met a lot of people who um, had worked in Silicon Valley um, and had been part of building and scaling tech companies. Um, and there was something about them. Their eyes lit up when they talked about what they were doing. And I just sort of said like, gosh, this really feels like my tribe of people. And so I called McKinsey and said, hey, can I transfer to the San Francisco office when I graduate? I'd never been to San Francisco, but I said, I just know that that's where I want to be. Um, and to their credit, they called me back three hours later and they said, sure, you're welcome to transfer. Um, and so I, I moved out here afterwards and, uh, you know, maybe the rest is history. <laughs> very, very cool. So how did you transition into the, the investment world? Yeah, so... Um, you know, came, came out here, was working mostly with tech companies at that point at, uh, at the firm at McKinsey and uh, had a lot of friends that I was starting to meet and get to know who were building and investing in early stage companies. And so really started to kind of feel the pull of going there. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still not sure why I went to investing first. I think it felt more familiar coming from a firm. I think it also felt like a really great vantage point to be able to kind of look at early stage technology and say like, how do I learn as quickly as possible? Where can I go and like drink from a fire hose to try to understand what it even means to be in technology, to be building a company? What makes a good company? How do you build a good company? How do you scale that company? Sort of all these fundamental questions. Um, and so I left and, and went to uh, first a hedge fund that opened up a, a late stage venture arm, and then more recently, um, kind of a classic early stage venture capital firm um, on the enterprise software side. Uh, and, you know, I, I liken venture to being like an intellectual candy land because you basically just have some of the most brilliant entrepreneurs and, and people in the world who come through your doors and share with you what they want to build a version of the future that they believe in and they want to make happen. And your job is to help them do that. Uh, and that was really exciting for me. And also just a really great learning opportunity to, um, again, learn from some of the best people about how they think about building world-class companies. Yeah. I thought it was your role at Greylock. So head of business development and partnership. I got, like, I what wonder, like, mean? Yeah. What did that like? Cause you know, VC firms are doing a lot these days with their platform, uh, which wasn't always the case. Sometimes they'd have an executive recruiter on staff to help out with, you know, portfolio executive searches, but the platform has really been a stable part of organizations or, or VC firms now. So, um, so what did your role in, entail? Yeah. So we talk a lot in the Valley about how software gets sold. And my role was a lot about the other side of it, bridging it to how does it get bought? 
Um, what that functionally means is I spent a lot of my time talking to buyers of enterprise software. So folks at the Fortune 1000 who are in decision-maker roles, usually CTOs, CIOs, CDOs, folks who are thinking about their technology stack and trying to understand what they were thinking about. Where are you seeing gaps in the market? What is the pain that you have within your company you're trying to solve? What do you wish existed? How do you think about evaluating new kinds of software? And that helped us as a firm, obviously, be smart about where we would want to place our bets. Um, and that helped our portfolio companies um, get introductions to potential customers. And that helped the, the large companies that I was talking to understand at least where we thought, in our own opinion, where the puck was headed um, and where we thought there were interesting areas of opportunity where we were placing our bets. You know, venture capital tends to take at um, the early stages a seven to 10 year time horizon. And so it was interesting to them to say, we want to know what kind of products are going to be coming down the market in a few years that you guys are starting to seed in now. So it was kind of this really fun win-win-win conversation uh, when you got the right people together um, who are all really passionate from totally different angles and, and kind of uh, uh, perspectives and incentives. Like, where's the world headed in technology? What, what's, what are the trends that are most important right now? Where are the smartest people spending their time? What kinds of problems are they trying to solve? It, I, when I saw it and I kind of put two and two together, that's where you're spending your time what a phenomenal opportunity like to, to build a company afterwards, to be an entrepreneur, to spend that time talking to enterprises, to understand how they buy software, where the gaps are, to build those relationships, to think about, like you said, where's the puck heading versus where it is today. Uh, what a phenomenal opportunity. So I just looked at that as a, you know, the B school is an amazing experience, but man, what that role was, that must've been phenomenal learning opportunity. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was grateful for it then. And I'm, if it's even possible, more grateful for it now, because I, I'm probably might not have founded Scribe otherwise, you know, the problem that we solve at Scribe was when I saw it time and time again, when I was consulting, I mean, when you're a consultant, at least in the kind of, of work that I did, you would go into operation center and your, your goal was to figure out how to make it more efficient, right? Either they were growing really quickly or they were scaling back, but for whatever reason, they needed to be more efficient. And the name of the game is you just go and you figure out who's the best person and it's op center and you sit next to them and you say, what are you doing differently? <laughs> and they would tell me, right? Oh, here's how I was on board. Here's what I was trained to do, but here are the 30 shortcuts that, you know, me and my team found them. We write that up in PowerPoint as consultants and we'd sell that back to people. And I always thought like, gosh, if those people had just had a way to share what they knew how to do, they, they could have done my job for me. Right. But, but I guess this is sort of the way of the world and it is what it is. Someone will certainly solve this kind of problem someday. Right. And then just fast forward 10 years and I'm, I'm working in VC and I'm hearing the same thing from having conversations with all of these, these um, leaders at enterprise companies of this problem has not been solved, <laughs> despite the fact that we have the technology to do it now. Um, and so I was able to, to kind of connect those dots, um, you know, as, as the famous Steve Jobs quote goes, you can only connect the dots when you look backwards. So I'm not going to make it sound like this was some part of master plan, but for me kind of looking backwards now, you know, it's connecting those things together and saying, gosh, I saw this firsthand fast forward. I thought someone else would solve this problem. We fast forward 10 years, no one has solved it yet. And now I'm hearing that this is a really big pain point for a lot of people. Maybe I should be the one to go do this. So how did you meet your, your co-founder Aaron to start to build this company scribe? 
Yeah. Aaron and I got introduced. I, I call it one of the, the greatest fortunes of my life um, meeting Aaron. Uh, he's just a wonderful, he's a wonderful technologist and a, and a gem of a human. Um, and I'm, I'm really lucky to, to be on this journey with him. Um, we got introduced through um, one of our investors, actually someone I, I knew from, uh, from when I'd worked at Greylock. Um, and, you know, Aaron has an interesting story. He's um, a self-taught programmer, had been coding since he was in middle school. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing the story, but I think it's very emblematic of Aaron. Aaron, Aaron actually got suspended from middle school for hacking his middle school. Um, oh, a that's a badge of honor. Way. <laughs> that's a badge um, of honor right there. <laughs> yes. um, and then, you know, and then, and then he went on to Exeter and Yale and some fancy schools and worked on Wall Street for a while and then started building companies um, and sold his most recent company to Google. And kind of similar to me, he had previously worked in, in the automation space, was really fascinated with this idea of like, how do we make people's lives better when they show up to work and they're nine to five fingers on keyboard, like trying to create value at their company? Like, how do we make that a better, more human experience? And so we met and it, it kind of was like this instant we both kind of care about similar things. Um, and so we just had a ton of energy coming out of that, that first conversation. And then from there, I think it just became very apparent to us that we had quite complementary skill sets. You know, when, when you think about someone that you want to start a company with, you want to have a really strong shared vision and shared values, but you want to be quite different in the things that you're good at and the things that you spike on. Um, and he and I found that in each other. All right. So what is Scribe? And I, I want to give a little bit of a, a teaser because I wanted to test out your, your product before we did the podcast. So I signed up and uh, I created a Scribe. And I am saying this and not trying to just because we're talking, but it was magic because I was just like, what? How did that just happen? So what is Scribe? Just so people can understand like why I had a magical experience. Scribe makes it really easy to capture and share how to do something. So the experience that you, you're describing that you went through, I'll, I'll describe it here, um, describes a, a Chrome extension or a desktop application, and you do the thing you want to explain to someone how to do. So your colleague says to you, hey, can you show me how I run a report in Salesforce or how, how do we capture our leads? Whatever. How do, how do I set my settings in Zoom? Whatever kind of question people are always asking you, hey, how do I? You just click the record button and you do that process. And when you're done, you click stop record and immediately scribe will instantly generate a step-by-step -step written guide with screenshots explaining how to do that process. Um, and there's a bunch of bells and whistles you might've discovered, like how to edit and customize and all those good things. But the point is you don't have to, all the info someone would need to do that process themselves or know what you did is automatically contained in that scribe. Um, so it makes and it's real. It actually, like, it actually happened that way for me when you used to have that aha moment where you're like, oh my God, that was so easy to create. Yet historically, you'd have to document each step, give a screenshot. And, but this all just kind of like, I just did the task and it automatically spit out each step as well as the screenshots. I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I love that you said that. And that we call that the aha moment. That's exactly right. When like you hit, I see this because we do a lot of user interviews. I see this when you, you watch someone kind of going through the process and they don't know what to expect. And then they click the stop record button and they're apprehensive on their face. And then boom, the scribe appears and they go, oh. <laughs> um, we actually had a series. It's very cool of users who took photos of themselves um, or really of the person that they were like showing scribe to on zoom. You know, they captured a photo of them when the scribe appeared and it's all these people going, <gasps> you know, like a look of delight on their face because 
they didn't expect software to just work um, and, and to just kind of do that for them. But that's the whole goal for us is exactly what you just said. Like, if you want to explain something to someone right now, maybe you're writing out that really painful word doc with like the screenshots and the copy paste and you're putting in the, the steps or you're hopping on a Zoom call and explaining it. Those are not great uses of your time, right? You've already figured out, you've done the hard part. You've already figured out how to do something valuable. Software should just make it really easy and automatic for you to capture and share that with someone else, right? So that, that's the whole idea with Scribe. Like, let's enable you to spend all your time on the human things, on the things that you're really good at. And let's just take away and automate all these other parts. So how did you get started and how did you figure out, you know, the path to, or your go-to-market strategy initially to how that evolved? Yeah. So we raised um, a very small amount of money when we first got started. Um, we were several times oversubscribed, but we said we just want to raise a minimum amount to be able to build a really basic product and get it in the hands of some people and see what they think and see if the world thinks that this thing that we think is valuable is actually valuable. And so we built a very, very basic version of Scribe and, um, and we released it on, uh, on Product Hunt, which is a community for product enthusiasts folks might be familiar with. Um, and uh, you and I were just chatting earlier about the famous Reid Hoffman quote, like if you're not embarrassed by your MVP, you spent too much time on it. We every now and then we'll pull up the first version of Scribe and just look at it. And we all both like cringe and chuckle at the same time because it just looks so dramatically different and, and way, way worse than our current product. But it had this, this really basic core functionality that, that you and I just talked about. And we said, okay, like, well, let's just get this out in the world and, and sort of see what happens. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. Scribe kind of picked up legs and, and grew. Um, we got a lot of great feedback from early users and we scaled to be in tens of thousands of organizations in over a hundred countries um, without doing a, you know, a single ounce of marketing, uh, entirely just driven by users who found our product and then start sharing it with other people either sending scribes to them, you know, a step-by-step guide, we call that a scribe, sending step-by-step guides they created to other people, or, you know, just telling their friends like, hey, can you believe that I created this thing? You should try it too. Now, this is a dream for most entrepreneurs to have that word of mouth growth. So was it, uh, you know, the, you know, powered by scribe, it was, you know, the branding and logo was always there. So it was easy for them to download the extension to have their own experience. Like, what? Well, how did, how did you get that traction? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a few different ways that are, we call this product led growth, right? Where your, your existing users sort of beget new users and, and, and bring them on. Um, and I mean, I mean, I want to be super clear to anyone listens. It sounds like a dream. I mean, we, we spent, years working on this. So I summarized it in a sentence, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't like boom, we turn it on don't. overnight and it explodes. Like you spend yeah. every overnight success you see it took a long time to get there. Um, so just to be really clear for, for everyone here. Um, um, yeah. So there's a, there's a few different ways that like a, a user brings on another user in, in product led growth. Um, you can obviously invite someone to come collaborate with you and join your team, right? So Scream's a team, Scribe is a team-based product. So say, Hey, you want to come on with me and we can edit and collaborate on our scribes together. You can also just send someone the scribe, right? And at the bottom it says, Keith created this scribe in 59 seconds, find out how, right? So that's a really powerful loop for us where people will receive a scribe and they'll say, 
hey, this thing looks really cool. Like how, how was this generated? And they click the button and they say, this was automatically generated. No way. Let me try this too. And it's a free product. And we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to reduce the friction dramatically down to nearly zero. Um, so we will test this and we clock new users. And from the moment you land on our site to the moment you're able to then create an account, create a scribe, share that scribe with someone else is under four minutes. Um, and we see this across people of different levels of digital literacy. So a key part of this, at least for us and the kind of product we built was just making it as easy as possible for almost anyone to be able to create and share as quickly as possible. And so that's how you start to see you know, those growth loops is you're not just adding a lot of value for a user, but you're doing it in a really quick, easy way where, you know, they have almost no cognitive overhead or burden in actually using your product. There's no learning curve. It's a nearly zero learning curve. The other thing I thought was interesting was the onboarding process for your product. So, um, things that I think about with VentureFizz and a customer signing up or a job seeker creating an account on VentureFizz, actually it's more of the job seeker side, is what's the right level of communication to make sure that they are creating a scribe, that they are you know, being using the product the way it should and continuing to use the product. So I did notice, you know, I got an onboarding you know, email scenario loop that was sent to me. So how do you think about that, the onboarding of a customer and how they use Scribe? Yeah, I love this question because um, it's so important as has so many applications across many different things. We, we think a ton about it, as you can imagine, um, with our product. And the email came from you because I, I picked yes. up on that too. Yes, yes. You'll receive different emails from different people at Scribe yep. for different purposes. I noticed that too. Yes. That is a, it's a choose your own journey. So depending on the actions that you take, what we see as helpful or what information it's because you, we, we want to be really thoughtful about what information do we give to people at what points in the journey. Right. And, you know, oftentimes I think there's a tendency to try to do as much education upfront as quickly as possible. And like the new hire that you onboard, right. If you give them a deluge of information on the first day, they're not going to remember it. So it's when you give people information at the moment that they need it. And what we're trying to do with the onboarding experience of Scribe is get you to that aha moment as fast as possible. So we want to give you the least amount of context, information, thinking, work that you have to do to get there. Um, and so you'll notice that we put a lot of thought into the UI and just how do you make it really, really easy and simple. Again, this idea of reducing cognitive overhead. If you have to stop and read a bunch of different things, you're probably not going to do it. Um, and then as you discover the product, starting to then surface more information about different things that you can do, whether it's that customization and editing, whether it's some of our newer features, more advanced features, um, doing that as a combination of in-product education, as well as via things like email, but trying to surface it at the moments where we think it's going to be relevant to you, where you're going to need it and be able to take action on it at that time. I love that. All right. So how did you figure out, um, you know, okay, we, we have a freemium product. Like, how did you get to the point where, okay, now we have our strategy for, you know, actually generating revenue and, you know, there's different stages of companies that leverage your product. There's enterprises, there's, you know, maybe startups. So how do you figure out the whole dynamics of pricing? 
Yeah. So we started with the, with the free version of scribe and continue to have it today and we'll continue to have it for probably forever. Um, because it's, it's helpful in so many ways. One is it's just a very easy way for us to continue to learn as we release new features, what, what people like, what people don't like, what the usage patterns look like. It's just very fast iteration and feedback. Um, we released our paid version, of self-serve scribe, swipe a credit card of scribe pro, um, frankly, because we had free users who were emailing us and saying, I can't keep using the free version. You're hosting too much of my data. I need to pay you. <laughs> and so we said, okay, great. Well, we'll create kind of this tier. You know, here you go. You can swipe a credit card. Um, and it's obviously evolved from there as we put in some of the more advanced features that power users tend to like. Um, still while maintaining a, a very, a very generous um, uh, free tier. And then we now have an enterprise tier as well, um, which really services much larger companies that have much more complex, um, you know, needs, as you can imagine, whether that's around, you know, security or the sales process itself, or a lot of the kind of the advanced administration features that you'd expect in an enterprise grade product. Um, so we, we didn't invent any new playbook in terms of thinking about, you know, the different tiers of our product. It's, it's kind of a pretty classic I'd say probably a bit more generous on the, the free tier side and then the options to either self-select into a, a self-service upgrade or into having conversations with our sales team. Um, but we drive everyone into the, the front door of our free product. We'd say, great, if you want to have a sales conversation with us, try a product. You know, we'll, we'll have a conversation with you. We're happy to chat. Try the product first. That'll answer a lot of your questions off the bat. And when we've optimized it to take under five minutes for you to do that, that becomes a really easy experience. And then really changes the conversation that we have with a prospect, right? Once they've tried it, because now it goes from, hey, can you show me a demo to, hey, I actually tried your product. I used it for this project that was really helpful. And I shared it with two of my colleagues and they're evaluating it right now, right? You just skipped a whole bunch of steps. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to do the, the demo because they already did the demo themselves. And that's the whole key of the UI being so easy. And that aha moment from the end user experience where it's like, okay, I can, I see what I can do with this. And, and maybe you even have them demo. We've had that happen, right? Where like our customers will demo to other people at their company. That is awesome. So you raised your series A round of funding from Tiger Global. So what are the plans ahead as far as you know, growth and hiring? Yeah, it's, um, so we, we've grown the team quite a bit um, since raising our, our funding. We've nearly tripled our team size in, uh, in just a few quarters. Um, and we're really focused now on, uh, product development. Um, we're, we're product led growth. Uh, so really investing in what are the, the features and the aspects of the product that get people to, you know, use it more, see more value from it and continue to try to take out as much friction as possible throughout that experience. Um, so for us, that's continuing to think about, you know, Scrub started as an individual user experience. I have to explain to someone how to do something like, let me quickly create a Scribe for it to now becoming more of a platform where teams can capture and share their collective knowledge of what they know how to do, right? Whether that's like a team working with themselves of we're onboarding new hires, or we just want to document amongst ourselves our best practices for how we do things to now um, teams that are focused external customer success teams, you know, Hey, we get questions all the time from our customers on, Hey, can you show me how to do this in our software? Right. And now starting to use scribe as the, the repository for, you know, answers to those common questions. So we're really investing in how do we make this a multiplayer game 
and how do we make it really easy and simple for folks, not just to create on their own, but create and share amongst a team, whether that's internal or external. Now, an extension of that series A fundraise. So you uh, have been part of VC firms in different roles and now as an entrepreneur, you know, raising capital for your own company. So what advice would you have for first-time founders on raising capital, you know, is it the right thing to do to pursue a VC firm? And if it is, how do you select the best fit, you know, based on spending your time wisely? Yeah. Um, I get asked this question a lot um, and I've actually written quite a bit about it. So I'll, I'll give some highlights here. And then if, if folks are interested, um, just, just Google it. Like I've, I've published a number of different articles with kind of the nitty gritty specifics more about how once you've decided to raise money, how to run the process, because uh, that, that's really important as well. Um, but we'll kind of come to the, the first question. Um, perhaps counterintuitively, especially when I was in VC, uh, I will tell most people not to raise money. Um, it is not the right answer for the vast majority of companies, at least raising venture capital money. Um, let's just start with the economics of what a venture capital firm is. Okay. So a VC firm, especially we'll start at the early stages. We'll say maybe like a classic series a investor seed numbers will be a little higher. They're probably making about 30 bets per portfolio, uh, per, per vintage, right? Okay. So they're doing 30 series a companies, maybe some follow-on financing in there. They are looking to get, you know, anywhere from like a two to five X return, depending on how good that fund is uh, on that um, uh, return of, of that, of that portfolio of the money that they're investing. Almost all of those returns will come from the two best companies out of that 30. Mm -hmm. So what they are playing for is not, is this a good investment? It's, is this a potential 10 to hundred X investment that is going to pay for all my other investments? And there's a very particular profile of company that has the potential to reach that. And so they're screening for not, are there really high odds that your company is going to do pretty well? It's, are there odds that your company is going to be an extreme breakout company? That's very different than the calculus that you're doing as an individual founder, right? The vast majority of companies out there are not going to be multi-billion dollar companies. And that's still okay, right? There's a lot of really great businesses out there that are million dollar companies, right? They're great for the yes. founder, they're great for the teams, they're great for the customers, they're great for the world. And so you need to have an honest conversation with yourself of, am I shooting for that multi-billion dollar outcome? Is that the right fit for me and for my business? And if it's not, you don't want to take capital from people who are not aligned in what a success scenario looks like for you. So I kind of encourage everyone to think about like, do you really need to be signing up for a very different kind of race than you might be thinking of today of, of where you want your company to go and also giving up some control um, depending on the terms that you raise in, in terms of what that looks like. Um, and for the vast majority of people, the answer will be that's, that's not the right, that's not the right trade-off to be making. It's also important to find the right, uh, you, you talked about the process of finding the right firm that, you know, it, it's not how many irons you can have in the fire. It's the right irons that are going to hopefully be a fit for, you know, their thesis of investing. Like, like you, you need to be more aligned with what the investor is looking for as far as their particular focus versus just trying to, you know, reach out to as many VC firms as possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I would argue it's not a numbers game and you shouldn't treat it as one, um, no. which is you want to do, if you do decide to raise, you want to be really thoughtful about the process that you run and who you raise from. Um, and those, those things are intertwined. Um, but before you even start like doing your research and homework, who are the people who invest in your space? Who are the people who see the world similarly to you? Um, who are the people who reference really well, who, you know, have backed founders that, you know, or, or have connections with who can vouch that they're great investors and, and good partners to have. And then there's, of course, always the, the personal fit too, right. Of getting to know someone, you know, building a company is, is a lot like, you know, building, building a family. And so you want to think about who are the people you have around the table that you're going to be partnered with for a long time. Um, and you're going to spend a lot of time with these people. And so where, where do you just have a good personal fit too, right? Where this person, you know, again, has shared vision and shared value is not that different from a co-founder, but maybe brings complementary skill sets, um, of things that maybe you or the founding team are less strong on, um, where they might be able to bring that kind of expertise to the table. Now we talked about your growth as far as hiring at Scribe. Uh, so one of the things that I think is really uh, impressive is how you've built a very diverse team. I mean, from what I gathered, it's over 70% women are underrepresented minorities. So how'd you go about building a diverse team at Scribe? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, we did not set out saying we're going to build a diverse team. Um, and it's only kind of by happenstance when we looked back and sort of calculated the numbers that we said, oh, wow, this is it's actually like quite a diverse team. And I, I think it's due to a few things. Um, one is we had a very diverse early team. Um, and so I think as folks kind of pull from their networks, um, you know, that led to like a much larger potential pool of, of folks that we were talking to um, and, and just meant that we got a diversity across different kinds. You know, we talk a lot about diversity and in, in terms of, you know, um, race and gender, but um, also people from different kinds of backgrounds, like living in different places, et cetera. I think the other thing is we think a lot about um, the kind of environment that we want to create here. And we think a lot about our values and we are very transparent about that during the recruiting process. So one of our, um, one of our values at Scribes is be the place where great people come to do the best work of their careers. In fact, I'm sitting at the office and I'm like staring right now at the, you know, the cliched poster we have on the wall that actually says that, but I'll, I'll say that we live it. Right. And, and so what, what does that mean? That means we spend a lot of time trying to find people who are great at what they do. Um, it also means we think a lot about how do we create an environment where they can show up and do work they feel proud of. And to us, that's an environment that is really respectful and transparent and inclusive, but also has a really strong growth mindset where people show up every day and challenge each other to do better. And so it means the kinds of people who end up here and who are drawn to that are people who say, I'm good at what I want do. I want to be world-class at that. And I might want to be world-class at that at Scribe. And so let me now go through the process. And, and we've met great people who are great at what they do and said, you know, we don't think you're a culture fit. Like this isn't the kind of environment. This is not going to be like a good, you know, two-way street. Um, and we, we will explicitly look at culture fit from that first interview. Um, and so the entire time that, that we're going through a process, we kind of think of it as like two-way dating, you know, are we a fit for you? Are you a fit for us? Is this the kind of environment where you can show up and do work you feel really proud of? Do you think you're going to be grow and get better as a professional while you're here? And do we think we're well set up to support that kind of growth? Um, 
And I think when you approach, you know, work from that kind of lens, it just, um, it attracts a much broader set of people. All right. So some quick hit quick questions. What, um, what are three apps you can't live without? Hmm. I use um, Siri. I know it's not an app, but I use uh, Siri for all my voice dictation. If you ever see me, I am like dictating into my phone all day long. Um, and maybe this is across the apps that I use, which I, kind of boring, but I use mostly a uh, superhuman for my email and Slack for, for communicating with my team. Um, and then we run on notion and Google docs, uh, internally. Um, so no, no big surprise ones there, but those are the, the kind of heavy hitter communication apps I'm in day in and day out. And, and I'll put a plug cause I'm a new mom. I recently had a baby. Um, I am uh, always on my Nanit, um, spying on my child <laughs> when, I, when I'm away at work. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, podcast or book recommendation? Uh, I love anything by Wallace Waddles. Um, people will be very familiar with his thinking, but probably not his work. Um, he was an author uh, well over a hundred years ago um, who wrote a lot around about visualization, creative visualization. So like imagine the reality that you want to create very specifically, um, literally down to like what it will look and feel like. Um, and, uh, and then go manifest that into being, um, and, uh, I find all of his stuff very inspiring. I do like to ask the question, uh, like, what do you like to do outside of work? And you mentioned, you know, you recently, uh, had a baby and you've been building the family. So, um, Instead of asking that question, like I, you, you had an interesting Because my post. answer is keeping my child alive. That's, right. that's what I do outside of work. <laughs> well, I, you had a, um, a post on LinkedIn that I thought was really interesting that showed you right as you raised your A, you had a photo shoot and you had two different pictures that you were going to use for the press release or whatever. And the, the one that you chose was more about, you know, you and the company, not you, you know, expecting during you're raising your series a, uh, but you posted the expecting photo on LinkedIn and it went viral as far as I could tell on LinkedIn yeah. measures. So like, talk about that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that was uh, that viral moment was really surprising for me. Yeah. So we raised our series a, when I was eight months pregnant, um, which was a pretty crazy time, uh, to raise. Um, we, we weren't expecting it. It was, it was kind of a, a preemptive term sheet situation. Um, and when we went to go do the announcement, we had, you know, two options of photos. Uh, one, one was of me, like very obviously eight months pregnant. And the other one was, you know, you couldn't quite tell, tell from the photo. Um, and we decided to not uh, share the, the one where I was very obviously pregnant. And, and it was because we really wanted the conversation to be about the company and, and what we had built and what we were trying to do and what we wanted to build. And we were afraid that the, the photo would distract from it. And then, you know, after having my child, I sort of said, gosh, like this is part of my story. This is part of our story. And, you know, I, I believe representation matters. And so I was like, I should share this photo. And I didn't put too much thought into it. I sort of just shared it on LinkedIn with the story of like, here, here's what went behind it. And um, it got millions of views. And, and the, the best part to me was I got a hundreds of personal messages from mostly women um, with stories about, you know, where they were kind of in, in their career and, and their journey with motherhood and sort of the fears and expectations and surprises and, and concerns that, that came with that, which was just incredible to see. And 
I think my takeaway was the reason it went viral is people are not used to scrolling their LinkedIn feed and seeing a photo of someone very pregnant in a business suit. <laughs> That's just not a common image, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that I hope that changes. Um, I hope that people kind of, you know, share more about what they're doing while they're pregnant. Um, and it just becomes kind of a, a more normal part of, of life because it, because it is a more, it is a normal part of life. It's not something that we see very often in the workplace. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was inspirational. I mean, it was an amazing photo and the way you outlined, and then you saw all the comments and, you know, the engagement, it was just, the comments were incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was well done. So kudos to you for sharing that photo. Yeah. I, um, again, it just, it just makes me realize like there are so many stories out there that, that are not, that are getting shared in the private messages, uh, you know, and, and not being shared publicly. And so, um, hopefully there's, there's some way someday we've even toyed whether, you know, there's something to do here of just like sharing, sharing more of those shining more of a light on, on what people are doing. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, you know, all the great stories and advice that you shared, and of course, what you're up to building Scribe. Thanks so much, Keith. I really appreciate it. It was fun chatting with you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.